What up, what up, what up, ladies and gents? Welcome to episode seven of When the Hunt Calls. Now let's jump right into this. Last episode, I got the opportunity to learn a lot about public land and public land issues. This episode, gonna learn a little bit more with my guest. His name is Lan Tawny. And if you recognize the name, that is because he is the president and CEO of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, all right? So enjoy this little hip hop ride and jump right into this conversation with me and Land. Let's kick this off. All right, ladies and gents, welcome to When the Hunt Calls. Um, my guest today is someone that I've been um, really, I that I've wanted to talk to for a long while now, and I'm I'm stoked to be you know on the line with him. Um, I'm gonna let him introduce my himself. I'm sorry, I'm gonna let him introduce himself and uh, tell you who he is, um, who's he affiliated with, and let's go from there. Cliff, uh, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, so I'm Land Tawny, and I'm the president and CEO of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, an organization that's uh, working to make sure you have access to public lands and waters, and then um, quality fish and wildlife habitat when you get there. Copy that. Now, before um, we go more into BHA, uh, I wanted to know, because I'm still, uh, as my you know journey develops i'm still getting familiar with terminology now what i wanted to know if you could define for me what exactly does backcountry mean because i've seen it used in plenty <laughs> of instagram usernames sure. uh, facebook names and stuff what does backcountry refer to yeah thank you for the question and so i, I think it's you know when I think about backcountry, it's not like, you know, there's wilderness areas. You know, I have the Bob Marshall Wilderness Area, which is just east of town where I am right now in Missoula. That's 1.1 million acres. And, you know, that is definitely backcountry. Wow. Uh, think about, like, like roadless areas, you know, that um, uh, that's backcountry. You know, I would say a lot of just public land in general um, is backcountry. And so it's less of a, like, you know, 1.1 million acres or roadless characteristics. I think backcountry to me is kind of more of a state of mind than anything. And so, you know, when you're getting out, you know, let's say on a, a thousand acre piece of property, and as soon as you kind of leave that that road and you're walking in, like kind of, it's, it's more about that mentality. Another way I like I describe it is, is you know, when I'm on water, I kind of get lost in, you know, what I'm doing, which is mostly fishing. And, and so it's, you know, I, I get concentrated and I'm in the kind of that mode of fishing. And so, you know, that can be my backcountry. And, the, you know, there's, you know, rivers that run through town here in Missoula, or there's, you know, marshes on the outside of big cities that I think, you know, you get lost in that water. So backcountry to me is more of like a state of mind. And it's kind of like that challenge, solitude and adventure. And wherever you can find those three things, I think backcountry uh, really is the definition of that. Now, you know, what's funny is you mentioned that 1.1 million acre uh, yeah. piece of public land. I, yeah. I got the opportunity to hunt a buddy's um uh it was a residential property and it was only six acres and right. i got turned i got turned around so i can only imagine <laughs> what 1.1 million acres would do to someone um, yeah you can then, get lost it's a lot of fun <coughs> though. all right so now what does um 
BHA do, or how can someone new, new to hunting, whether it's bow hunting, um, you know, uh, hunting with firearms or fishing? Because I'm assuming that's what that's what ang- the term anglers refers to, correct? Yep. Is fishing. Yep. All right. Yep. Any anyone looking to get into the outdoors, how can they, or how does BHA relate to them? Like, how can the two work together? That's a great question. So I would say in a couple of different ways, I think, you know, first we have these kind of get togethers called pint nights and they're all across the country, you know, from uh, Brooklyn to uh, here in Montana to out in Portland to everywhere in between. And basically these pint nights are opportunities for people to kind of get, you know, um, come together and talk about, you know, hunting and fishing, you know, the public lands kind of um, policies that we're working towards. And they're very relaxed kind of opportunities to do just that. And so I was just in uh, Minneapolis. We were there for Pheasants Fest. And on Thursday night, we did a pint night. And four four or five of the people that showed up out of about 100 were brand new, never had hunted before, never had fished before. And they were there to kind of like just kind of see what this was all about. And what's awesome in that venue is that you can have, you know, conversations rather than, you know, I think those conversations um, where everybody gets more comfortable with each other, I think is important. So I think that's like the first way. Um, and then we have these uh, learning how to hunt programs all across the country. And uh, these learning how to hunt programs really, you know, I mean, there's some, there's some hunting can be, hunting in particular, I think in fishing as well, can be intimidating. And so this really is like, you know, a crass course and kind of um, what you need to know about hunting, how you can get engaged, and then ultimately, um, you know, what happens if you kill something, and what do you do with that meat, and then from there, um, you know, having, if this isn't happening all over the country for us, because just, it's it's so many people, but um, having mentors as well that can go out with folks and be with them in the field, and so while they've learned all these things, you know, when you're out there for the first, you know, few times, um, you know, there's a lot of things to think about, and so a mentor can help with that. So that's really what we're doing. I would say that, you know, besides that, um, you know, we've got some stuff on our YouTube channel um, about uh, uh, just kind of skills, I guess, like woods, woodsmanship and craftsmanship kind of in the woods. And so, you know, that's like how to build a fire in the rain or how to build a, a lean-to with a tarp for shelter. There's just some simple things that, you know, you can learn on YouTube through us as well. Nice, nice. Now, um, I'm coming from a big city, from New York City, to be exact. Um, yeah. And um, how can someone... Because I, I find the, those those classes that you're talking about, the, the introduction to, you know, BHA, introduction to hunting, things like that, um, are offered, you know, basically few and far between. Now, I'm not going to say that about BHA because I can sure. honestly say... I didn't. I didn't look into that to see um, if the the local BHA chapter did offer anything like that. But I'm finding that for me, coming from Queens, um, to go to something like that, I've got to travel like five, six hours up, up um, you know, towards the Adirondacks in order to attend something like that. And yeah. being being a husband and father, um, and then on top of that, my work, work schedule, something like that isn't isn't very accessible for me how can someone um new like myself maybe help um the local b uh bha chapter maybe get something within even though you know hunting within the five boroughs of new york city isn't possible but maybe getting workshops like that into the city love it 
Um, so it was like a year and a half ago, we did an event at the Filson store, um, there, and I believe they're in Brooklyn. Um, and, and so we did like a storytelling event there. And so there has been, and I know that they've done, I think there's a brewery in Brooklyn that they've done a couple events at, maybe even like an archery shop. And so there has been some things, but not consistent, like you're talking about. So how do you get that done? Um, I think, you know, it's really, you know, getting engaged with the chapter leadership and, you know, one of the ways to do that, um, which is like these simple kind of tools that we have these days, but is like our Facebook group for New York. So within that group, um, you have the ability to say, Hey, I'm down here and, uh, the five barrels and I want to, you know, figure out if we can get something going. And then people will react to that. I know like Todd Waldron, who is, uh, the chairman of the new york chapter i was just with him in minneapolis and he is like they just did a uh an event in new york with a modern carnivore where they did like uh some like butchering and then some cooking a wild game and so i say all this is that like they'll be responsive but you know as you know the larger bha grows the more we can do and one of the ways we do that is you know conversations like you're having right now is like people that are doers that want to go do something and then we empower them to do that and then that helps build the community you know where you are so i would highly encourage you to kind of reach out on the on the facebook page and if that doesn't work you can send me a note and i'll make sure you get hooked up with todd in particular oh perfect i appreciate that all right now um with that being said um prior to you know the beginning of the recording we spoke briefly and i had touched on something um you brought up uh, well i brought up the fact that i heard of you through an interview you you had back in 2016 um so i wanted to touch on just the hunting community in general or even the makeup of the hunting community because um one of the things you mentioned was in reference to bha you wanted um the membership of BHA to reflect, you know, the makeup of our country, of America as a whole. Um, and to me, I'd like to see that. Um, I'm not saying it isn't because, again, as an aspiring hunter, there's there a lot of things I've yet to learn. So I may be just, you know, part of my friends talking out my ass a little bit. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, has in because, again, that interview took place in 2016. Do you believe your membership has grown to sort of reflect the diversity in our country? Um, or is it something that you guys are still working on and still striving for? I mean, I think it's something we'll always be working on, right? I don't think that's something that you necessarily are done with. Um, I think, you know, we've gotten much better since 2016. Um, and whether that's like diversity within our staff or diversity within our kind of chapter leadership, um, or, you know, kind of within our just general membership, you know, we've grown from a thousand members back in 2003 or two, excuse me, 2013, uh, to 40,000 members today. And so there's been this exponential growth. And within that, um, I think we're, we're, you know, doing a better job and whether that's, you know, I think reaching out and, um, you know, like large cities, and I've talked about, I mean, we've talked a little bit about New York, but you're talking about like Minneapolis and Seattle, um, San Francisco, like these places are just like diverse in nature um, in a lot of ways. And so I think that's been part of the strategy. Um, You know, we're working all the time when we think about like, we do a lot of storytelling events. And when we're doing those storytelling events, like how, you know, what, 
who those storytellers kind of represent. Um, and so that, you know, that we reflect more of kind of what, you know, the overall country looks like. And so we're making strides to do that all the time, Cliff. Uh, is it perfect yet? I would say no. And, you know, I think again, that it's something that, that, that work is probably never done. Um, but, uh, are we in a better place in 2016? I would say absolutely. Yes. No, I'm glad. Definitely glad to hear it. Um, now, again, referencing the, the interview that I came across all those years ago, uh, back in 2016, um, your interview took place before the 2016 presidential election. And at the time, I know that being four years ago, there was prob there were probably pieces of legislation that might have affected, um, you know, all, all types of, you know, hunters and anglers. Um, this year... Is there anything, um, whether it be, uh, you know, Democrats or Republicans, are there any, you know, I'm not even going to say politicians. Are there any, uh, anyone on the left or the right that we should kind of be looking out for or any subjects or legislation in general that we should be looking out for as hunters and pay attention to that might influence, like, you know, who we may, uh, who we may want to vote for this, uh, this November? Yeah, you know, I think and appreciate the question. And I will say that, you know, we're a 501c3, so we can't legally tell you who to vote for. Um, but we Copy can, that. you know, talk to you about, you know, like, like things that we should demand from our politicians. When I say demand, I mean that in a very serious way is that, you know, this country, the way it's run is the squeaky wheel gets the grease and we, the people, you know, decide who we want to represent us. And, you know, I think, public lands and public waters in general is an issue that crosses party lines and, you know, Agreed. should be, you know, important to everybody in America. Yeah. Um, our membership is 33% independent, 26% uh, Republican, 23% uh, Democratic. And then after that, um, you know, it's either like Green Party or Libertarian, which is crazy because Libertarian hates government. Um, but, uh, you know, it's the, I feel like that reflects, you know, the country in a lot of ways. And, you know, I'll just give one example. It was last year, about this time, there was a public lands package that was put together, and it was one of the first things that they did after that long shutdown. And so when you think about that shutdown and how kind of divisive that was, everybody's blaming everybody. And then one of the first things they do is they come back and they pass this public lands package that had, it was like 700 pages long, had protections. Um, I think it had over a million acres in, in wilderness. It had um, some mineral withdrawals, and it had the, um, the permanent reauthorization the number one access tool in this country called the Land and Water Conservation Fund. All that said, it passed 92 to 8 in the Senate and 363 to 62 in the House, which are both, you know, veto-proof votes, but they don't make votes like that anymore. You know, <laughs> like that mm. was, uh, mm. it was, and it was all around public lands. And so I think, I say all that as I think public lands, you know, bring people together um, and can be unifying. But that doesn't happen, you know, in a vacuum. Like we, the people, have to demand that. So I think as we're going into this election cycle, um, one of the things that I think all people should be thinking about and should be asking their elected officials is, is really around the Clean Water Act. And the Clean Water Act, you know, has stood the test of time um, and protects, you know, some of our most important waters, most of which, you know, are initiate on public lands. And, you know, protections were rolled back um, uh, this last, just here in the last month. And for the, you know, for temporary wetlands and intermittent streams. So I think that's one that all, you know, politicians should be asked is like how important clean water is to you and what do you think about the new rule changes? Um, so that's a major one. I think that, you know, this idea of energy dominance is a really tough one for me. I'm, I'm, 
I'm very uh, down with uh, energy independence, you know, and I think mm-hmm. especially done at a you know responsible fashion and a sustainable fashion. Um, but that energy independence makes way more sense to me than energy dominance. When I hear the word energy dominance, you know, that's the rape and pillage that you know we've kind of avoided in this country. And when Could we have you, done that, rape I, and pi- go ahead. Hold on, hold yeah. on, one second. I apologize for interrupting you. Could you, because I'm totally ignorant to what either of those phrases mean, energy dominance and totally. so what, what what exact exactly is that? Yeah, I think, you know, out of you know, I think <clears throat> after the attacks um um on 9-11, there was a, this big push for energy independence and so that we did not depend on foreign oil anymore, and so that uh, we could kind of rid ourselves of some of that those constraints. And I think like, to me, that makes total sense. You know, energy independence makes it so we can make our own decisions. Um, we're not, you know, dependent on other countries. And that we have resources in this country, you know, natural resources that develop responsibly, you know, will be there for a long time and will not have, you know, major impacts, you know, on, on clean air, clean water. And so that's that energy independence. The energy dominance really is, is that, you know, on our public lands, energy becomes the key component of what we're trying to use those those public lands for. And so whether that's coal development, oil and gas, those are the major ones. Now you've heard, you know, talk about these kind of strategic minerals, which would be copper, gold, platinum, um, and others. And, and so the idea that, you know, this energy dominance to me, that means somebody's making money off of that, right? And, yeah. and not that making money is a bad thing, but when money becomes the major thing that is driving, like, those lands, those waters, the people, the animals, the wildlife, the fish, they all suffer. And there's plenty of examples of that, you know, throughout the country and throughout the world. And so major difference, I think, is energy dominance. And so when you look at places, you know, like the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge up in Alaska, you look at like the Boundary Waters, which are in northern Minnesota, like these special, special places that belong to you and I and everybody listening to this, and I want to make sure people understand that, is that mm-hmm. you know, you and I own 640 million acres. There is no other country in the world that operates like that, where these lands belong to the people. And so as this energy dominance kind of becomes the prevalent idea of the day, like we the people lose out on that every single time. And um, and it's up to us to kind of, you know, to change that. And so I think, you know, uh, so I, I have that first question, you know, ask about clean water and then that second piece about energy dominance and, you know, politicians that are for energy dominance. Uh, it's a short term game uh, for a small amount of people that does not, you know, look forward to the future and, and really think about conservation. So those are two that I think I would ask, um, you know, as as we're going around. And, um, and then the, the third one, I think, is um, while we own these 640 million acres, um, here in, in this country, uh, there's 16 million acres of that that are inaccessible. So places where you and I can't go, but they are public land. They're surrounded by private land. I think it's a question, that third question would be, is like, what are your thoughts on you know gaining access to these inaccessible public lands? Well, wait, I think wait, those, hang, hold on. Yep. So I'm sorry again for interrupting. No, no. So you're telling me, so there are the, there, there are these, you know, these properties, these public lands yep. that are literally surrounded by private land and so because of that if you don't have basically the permission of the the private landowners you can't get to that uh public absolutely land. absolutely but how, how so does like, that how does that occur though 
<laughs> so there's there's so there's a couple different ways I would say, and thank you for that question. I'm I'm so immersed in this stuff, so I appreciate the, the more detailed questions um, and breaking it down because sometimes I gloss over things. So inaccessible private lands or public lands, how does that happen? So majority of the way that happened is like especially in the development as it goes west. There's states like Iowa that have two percent public land, and that two percent. The reason they have two percent is because the states when they became states, sold off the majority of those public lands. Um, and so in that case, there may be a postage stamp of public land that was never um, uh, sold to anybody, and it's surrounded by private land. Um, in other cases, you have, um, as you farther go west, you have like railroad grants. And so railroad grants gave uh, every other section to the railroad, and so that became de facto private land. And, and so now as they've sold that, you know, the, those those public lands that are interspersed within that are inaccessible now. And so that has all led to, so I'd say it's like these kind of state sell-offs as well as kind of these expansion efforts, um, whether that's through like the 1872 mine law or when the railroads came through, um, that led to uh, these, I guess, um, isolated public lands. And, you know, again, 16 million acres. There's In my home state of Montana, there's 4 million what I'd have you do is I think Montana would be a great map for you to look at. If you look at the, if you looked at like uh, like land ownership maps for Montana, that checkerboard effect is going to give you a really good idea on kind of um, what we're talking about right now. Uh, so now lim, lim, I'm, I'm curious because all right, with this public land that's inaccessible, right? Yep. I've, I I can only assume that this land's got to be managed somehow. Um, so how how is it i mean in terms of just the the management of uh just the habits the wildlife habitat alone how does the government go about managing that if it's again inaccessible short answer is it's really hard <laughs> right and and there's programs in place this one's a mouthful but it's called the federal land uh transaction facility facilitation act the federal <laughs> land Transaction Facilitation Act. Say that five times fast. Um, <laughs> but the uh, that one is trying to figure out how you actually block up some of these lands, and so it gives the ability for the federal government to sell some uh, sell some public lands that are inaccessible that may up open up other access other places. And so with that program, um, which is something we totally support because it does it kind of on a case by case basis. Plus, when you sell that public land, it stays in an account to buy other public land, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're blocking up these areas, and whether that's important for fish and wildlife habitat or that's important to uh, access, both of those things kind of build into that. And I would say that, you know, that it's it's difficult to manage those lands. It has to be in partnership with private landowners and some of those private landowners, you know, are good partners and good stewards and others aren't. So it makes it difficult, but in general, you know, which is part of, I think, uh, the resistance to trying to uh, get access to these places is, is that they're managed like de facto private land, right? When they're surrounded by private land, the only people that have access to them is that private landowner. And so that public land basically becomes their land at that same time. Got it. Now let me let me ask. Um, mm -hmm. Being being new to all this, are public lands um, regulated on a national level or a city or a, a local and you know a local level? You know, by the local mayor or governor and things like that. All of that legislation does that come from 
you know, like I said, from Congress, or is it more uh, regulated on a city or state level? It's a great question. So kind of really, it's, I'd say all of the above, right? So think all the way from like city parks to uh, county parks to state parks. And then you get into the 640 million that I talked about, which is federally managed. And those acres, you know, are national parks, they're national forests, they're national fish and wildlife refuges, um, national monuments, that federal kind of component, that all happens, I would say, at that national level. Now, that's where direction actually happens at that level. Um, but then there's, you know, district managers, there's people on the ground that are working with um, folks to carry out some of those national priorities, but ultimately those those decisions are being made on the ground. Um, and so that's like the federal side. And then again, like, I mean, the, but there's city, state, county, there's public lands kind of at all levels, which is, I think, shows, I think, the recognition by the people that these places are important, you know, and I, I've, I've been to New York once, New York City, and, uh, you know, Central Park is like this oasis in, in this big, you know, massive craziness. And what foresight, foresight that was, you know, to set aside Central Park in the middle of, you know, some of the most expensive real estate in the world. And, you know, the solace, at least that provided me on my trip, you know, to get away from it all and uh, <laughs> go back. And um, it was pretty <clears throat> rad, you know, and people are fishing and, like, people are, you know, running and, like, just kind of getting some fresh air. And so I think, you know, at a city level, people recognize it, at a county level, at a state level, and at a federal level. Um, but all those have different kind of management regimes within them. All right. All right. So um, I guess uh, to kind of round this out a bit, um new hunters new anglers um what can we do um i guess to start all right so let's let's say i've i've been fishing you know or hunting heavily for a year which i wish that was the case um, <laughs> um how how can we necessarily get involved now we we because it's it's all right, I, I'll give you a perfect example. Here in New York City, um, it's I feel a huge disconnect. You know what I'm saying? While while I'm learning, while I'm learning so much about public lands, um, the public lands, for example, that I would love to hunt and such, um, are hours outside. You know, outside of New York City. Um, yeah. So, in terms of legislation, I feel as a New Yorker a little bit disconnected. So, how can we get involved a little bit more what can we do um i guess in terms of starting small you know taking baby steps what can we do great question i think you know the first part is <laughs> i think you know part of what we've been talking about today is like there's some education there and you know i think whether that's you know becoming a member of bha small little plug right there right <laughs> uh, um but like i think learning you know kind of about where this you know all these public lands came from how we got them um, you know, there in New York, I would say water, you know, is probably the easiest thing for you to, you know, um, uh, utilize, you know, there in the city right now um, for fishing in particular. But if for hunting, it's going to be, like you said, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. But I think educating yourself on kind of, you know, where these things came from um, and how they got to be and like what we're doing today to try to make sure that they are perpetuated forward is a huge important step. Um, and again, I think you know, becoming a member of BHA makes some sense there. I think... You know, what we talked about earlier is that is like really trying to find the community, right? And I think I mentioned 
and you may know more about this, but I think there there is a uh, uh, archery shop in Brooklyn, and so you know, there's I'm sure there's you know kind of events that they have. I know there's you know fly shops, um, you know, within the in the city, and so I think it's finding community there. But then you know, reaching out to our folks, um, especially on social media through our Facebook page, and being like, hey. We want to get something going down here. How can you help us do that? And, you know, people will help, you know, one, bring people together. And once you start doing that, you know, there's there may be places that you're unaware of that are closer to the city, right, that you could go on, um, that you can, you know, start getting that, those opportunities that, again, you might not just realize that are there. And you get to meet people and, I think, learn different things. And so I think those informal get-togethers are really important. But it's really about finding your community. And so whether that's at the fly shop or at the kind of the bow shop or, you know, other, I think it's just important to try to find that. So I would encourage you, Cliff, to, again, like kind of reach out or anybody listening to this, reach out whether they're in New York City or anywhere in this country is reach out to our chapters and, um, you know, say that you're interested in getting involved and, you know, that you're a new hunter and that, um, and I, and I almost guarantee you that people will reach out in a positive way. Um, and that, you know, you'll find some common ground and, um, hopefully get together. All right. Appreciate that. So now, you know what, you called it a small plug. Let's make it a big <laughs> one. All right. Let's make it a big one. Um, how what are you you talked about joining bha how can one go about joining well i know pretty much you can go to the website but what do what does membership to bha offer exactly absolutely so it's uh 35 dollars a year uh, with that 35 dollars, you get uh, a bunch of discount codes to a lot of our um our corporate partners whether that's like yeti or filson stanley sick uh kind of list goes on um and so you pay for that 35 dollars pretty quickly if you purchase anything just because of the discount counts you, you get um and then you get our magazine four times a year and i will say you know i'm partial to our magazine but it's 84 pages long and it has stories from pennsylvania new york down to florida to up in canada where we have chapters to California and kind of just gives you an idea. I think that's that education piece on what we're working on and, um, you know, these different public lands that belong to all of us all over the country. You know, it doesn't matter if you live in New York City or Montana, that 1.1 million acre Bob Marshall that I referenced before, that belongs to you, Cliff, just as much as it belongs to me. Um, and so I think that's that, you know, that magazine gets you, um, comes to you quarterly. And then, you know, you get hooked up with your, your state chapter. And so the state chapter, like through email, we'll talk about events that are happening um, and uh, and ways that you can get involved, you know, either at the state legislative level or at the federal level. We try to make, you know, it easy for you. So we'll send you an email and say, X issue is going on right now. Here's an easy way for you to contact your legislators. And so you have the opportunity to get engaged in that kind of political process as well. And so I think those are kind of the things that I would say is that, um, you know, it's the discounts, it's the magazine four times a year, it's the um, you know, invitation to events, and then um, the ability to engage you in that political process. So four things. All right, perfect. And um, just last thing, any advice you want to offer any uh, new hunters and or anglers out there? Uh, make mistakes. <laughs> sounds weird, but like, I think it's uh, one of the best ways to learn. And I, you know, I grew up hunting and fishing since I was a little kid. 
and I'm still making mistakes all the time. And, you know, I'm learning from those mistakes and, uh, you know, being comfortable, I think, with that um, out in the woods. And so um, I think that'd be the biggest one is, is don't be afraid to make mistakes and just learn from those things and, and know that, you know, all of us are constantly learning. And, uh, and that's a good thing to keep our minds uh, in a good place, I would say. All right. I can appreciate that. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Len, for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time out. Um, I'm pretty sure being uh, you know, president and CEO of uh, such an organization, probably your schedule is full. So again, I, I really appreciate you taking the time out to speak to me today. Oh, Cliff, man, it was my pleasure. And uh, I can hear the excitement in your voice. So that's always <laughs> rad. It fills my bucket, I will say, when I get to talk to new hunters like you. And especially, I think, you know, in a place um, like the big city, the, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily intuitively happen. Like, I think that's pretty rad. And um, I'm looking through my calendar I'm going to be in New New York up in Westkill. We're doing like a, a like a overnight event at the Westkill Brewery um, and it's like in July, July like I think 17th through like the 19th. So, um, we should stay in touch. I don't know how far that is away from you cuz I'm just getting my uh, New York kind of map in my head. Um, <laughs> but that's something you could come to. That'd be a place where you know there's going to be 100 150 people um, that you know, would love to talk more about kind of hunting opportunities and just kind of build that community. Perfect. Um, the minute we get off this call, I will be uh, Google mapping uh, <laughs> where West Coast <Hill> is located. <laughs> and hopefully it's not too far away. No, save here. Save here. All right. Thanks again, Len. I appreciate it, buddy. Yeah. Anytime, man. Anytime. All right, so I really want to thank Len for taking the time out to get on this call with me today. Again, learned a lot about, um, you know, public land issues, learned a lot about EHA. Now, um, not too long after recording my conversation with Len, um, I had gotten an email from Backcountry Hunters and Anglers basically asking me, asking all of us to take action, um, action towards a potential bill that would help fund the land and water conservation um, fund. All right, so what I've done in the show notes so that way you can take part in this as well is I've basically provided the link. Um, you click on that link, it'll take you to a already written email that you can send to your local senator letting them know what your thoughts about, what your thoughts are about this proposed bill. All right. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you did, go ahead and leave me a five-star rating. And if you really, really enjoyed it, do me a huge favor and uh, go ahead and leave a review and share the podcast with your friends. All right. Y'all have a blessed day.